Well, I told you all the first week of Pastor Tim's sabbatical that you'd get a lot of youth ministry illustrations this summer. And I think I've been pretty faithful to that. I think most of my sermons, the introduction has had something to do with next generation ministry, whether children, teens, or young adults, and today is no different. I get a lot of questions from parents, from volunteers about adolescence. What is adolescence? What is with this thing I hear about the extension of adolescence? What kind of expectations should I have around young people as they enter this stage of life called adolescence. For most of us, we kind of get the idea. We, we vaguely understand what adolescence is, but it'd be hard to kind of pinpoint it, to define it. And so often when I'm in these conversations, I like to give a helpful definition. I got this definition from a mentor, and I think it really helps us to wrap our minds around the essential feature of adolescence. And, and here's the definition. Adolescence is the stage of a young person's life when they gain the cognitive abilities and the cultural expectation that they will begin asking the biggest questions of life. That's it. There's so many other features to adolescence, but you can see this as the dominating feature. All of a sudden, young people come into this self-awareness and to this stage of life where everyone around them expects that they will begin asking who am I? How does my life matter? Who are my people? These are the questions of identity, purpose, and belonging. And here's the secret. It's not just teenagers that are asking these questions. All of us are constantly asking these questions. Who am I? How does my life have meaning and purpose? Where do I belong? And we're giving provisional answers as we go. And then we're constantly revisiting our answers and updating them. You get a new hobby, a new interest, and you update your sense of identity. You get a new job or you change careers entirely and you have this new sense of your life purpose. Or you find a new friend group or you get married or you have a kid and your sense of belonging is totally transformed. We're constantly revisiting these really important questions. Teenagers and young adults are just doing it for the first or second time. And what I'm trying to do as next generation pastor at Trinity is help teenagers answer these foundational questions in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to urge you to reconsider your answers to these big existential questions and answer them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're continuing in our sermon series on the Psalms. We're reminding ourselves this summer that the Psalms are the original prayer book of the church, the original prayer book of Jesus. And so the Psalms give us prayers, give us words to free up our devotional life so that we can love, trust, and obey God as we ought. And this morning in Psalm 84, we're gonna see how this Psalm is giving us answers to these fundamental questions so that again, we can be freed up to love, trust, and obey God. So if you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 84. We're going to see three things, these three questions answered. First, when we come to the question of our identity, the answer is that fundamentally we are worshipers of God. Second, when we come to the question of our purpose, our meaning in life, we were made to be disciples. And finally, when we come to this question of belonging, we were made to trust in the care, the provision of God. 
And it, just as I have all summer long, I'm encouraging you to memorize the Psalms with me. This one, for some reason, took me a long time. It's a little bit of a longer Psalm, but it was fun to work at. And I hope some of you have had fun working at trying to memorize these Psalms. But this one might be one of the more formational ones you could memorize because it's teaching your heart where to find the biggest answers to life's biggest questions again and again. So follow along with me in Psalm 84. I've memorized it in the ESV. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who, who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of, stream, of springs. And the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield. O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The first thing we see in our psalm this morning is when we're trying to answer this question of our identity, we need to find that fundamentally we are worshipers. We were made to worship God. We don't know who our psalmist is. The, the, it's, a lot of different commentators will suggest David. Some will suggest uh, Israelites in the exile thinking back on the temple that was destroyed, the temple that they miss. We don't really know. And it doesn't really matter. What we do know is that this psalmist has found satisfying answers to the biggest existential questions of life in God. And the first four verses show us that the psalmist has answered this identity question in worship. The psalmist longs for the courts of the Lord. The psalmist says how lovely are the courts of God, the temple of God, not because it's a magnificent building, but because God is there and he longs to go to worship. He longs every part of him for God. His soul, his heart, his flesh, that's, that's every part of the, of the Jewish mindset of who, who a person is, their whole person longing for God. And then you hear about the, the altars, the, the sparrow and the swallow. And the idea there is that he wants to be near to the altars like the swallow, the sparrow. It's an argument from lesser to greater. These birds get to be near your altars, oh God. How much more important it is for me to come near to your altars. And the reason he wants that is because the altar is the place of sacrifice, the place where our reconciliation with God happens, the place where our sins are forgiven. The psalmist longs to be reconciled to God, to worship him in the purity of holiness. 
And then finally, he finishes with this, this reflection on the Levites, the priests who always dwell in the temple, who are always singing God's praise. And it's almost like he's, he's jealous. How blessed are they that they get to continually be in your presence and praise you, God. That is the longing of the psalmist's heart. That's the longing of all of our hearts. And this message of finding our identity, chiefly in being a worshiper of God, flies in the face of, of perhaps the most common cultural myth today. That myth is, be true to yourself. Be authentic to yourself. You get to create and shape your own identity. Your identity is a matter of something that bubbles up within you that you discover, and you must be authentic to it. And therefore, we're, we're putting the weight on the shoulders of a generation to make some kind of sustainable, some kind of meaningful sense of identity out of nothing. And so we shouldn't be shocked when we find out that actually young people today are experiencing an epidemic of anxiety and depression, that suicide rates are the highest they've been since World War II, because we're literally telling everybody, find your happiness from within, something you made up, and, and try to be happy. Try to have a sense of who you are. And we're finding that no one is really successful in that. People are not happy when they have to create their own sense of identity. Instead, we're supposed to see in the scriptures, you receive your identity. I had a professor at Moody who put it very simply. You don't name yourself. You receive your identity as a gift. First from your parents, but ultimately from the Lord. Your identity is a gift to be received. And so this, this joy, this peace, this love, this passion, this satisfaction the psalmist has, it can't be yours unless your deepest root of identity is in the Lord. The myth is that your identity needs to be untethered from any other obligation, from anyone who would tell you who you are. You need to be cut off from those, those restrictions. But the psalmist finds his absolute freedom not apart from God, not apart from the obligations of the temple, but in his service, his worship to the Lord. It's a cliche, but St. Augustine said that in the beginning of his confessions, we were made to find our joy in praising God and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And so I have a simple question that's profound and I think you can't answer it while you're listening to this sermon. You're gonna to have to go home and think about it. What is the anchor of your identity. I think most of us would like to say it's Jesus. We would like to say the anchor of our identity is Christ. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we're really paying attention, the deeper anchor of our, our identity often is what we do for our living. It's what other people think about us. It's some accomplishment that we have in, in our life. And, and so we find that we're actually insecure we're not experiencing this deep satisfaction and joy of the psalmist because our identity is in something else, something shaky, and not fundamentally in understanding I was made to worship God. That's who I am. I'm a worshiper. Look back at the text, verses 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. They go through the valley of Baca and they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. 
They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The first thing we see in our text is that when we're trying to answer this identity question, who am I? The answer is that we were made to worship God. I am a worshiper. But the second thing we see is when we go to answer this purpose question, how does my life have meaning and significance? We are supposed to find that answer in being God's disciple. We see this key word all throughout the Psalms, blessed. What is it to be blessed, to be truly happy? And we see it again in verse five. The first blessing was in verse four. Blessed is the one who dwells in the house of God. But this one is about going with God. Blessed is the one whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. This is about a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage to the temple. We talked earlier this summer in Psalm 121 how pilgrimage was this regular feature of life for the Israelites, that they would make three pilgrimages a year to the temple for Pentecost, well, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And so here the psalmist is saying, blessed is the one whose heart is committed to serving God whose heart is committed to fulfilling their vows, whose heart is committed to obeying the law of God, someone who is a disciple. We don't have pilgrimage today as Christians. You can go to the Holy Land. You can have your faith really enriched by visiting the places that Jesus walked and traveled and did miracles. But a pilgrimage is not an essential piece of the Christian faith. Rather, the pilgrimage of the Old Testament correlates to discipleship in the New Jesus calls us to leave our nets and to follow him. He calls us to have the highways to Zion, so to speak, in our hearts, that we would be committed to following him, to obeying his teachings, to growing in a knowledge of the grace and love of our Lord. That's what we are called to. And so again, are you pursuing that discipleship? Are you pursuing that life purpose? There's two images here in verses six and seven that I think really bring out in fullness why being a disciple of God is the greatest purpose your life could ever have. First, in verse six, is the valley of Baca. Baca is a hard word to translate. It either means weeping or it means balsam tree. If it means weeping, the idea is as the, the pilgrim travels through places of, of hardship, and suffering and loss, those tears are transformed. Those tears are transfigured into springs of life, into pools of life. If the idea is a balsam tree, a balsam tree grew in the desert, in the wilderness, in dry places. And so again, the image is a pilgrim who's traveling through dry desert places, transforms that space into a place of flourishing and life. So however you translate Baca, the image is very similar. And the idea behind it is so powerful. One of the most powerful apologetics of the Christian faith. The idea there is if your purpose in life is to be a disciple to God, then suffering and hardship, loss, death, sorrow, pain, dryness, desert places in your journey with God do not defeat you. They do not crush you. They do not make you swerve from your purpose. In fact, those are the places where God works most powerfully, where we are reminded that we serve the God of resurrection life, who takes death and brings life out of it, who takes barrenness and makes springs of water. 
That's who our God is. And that means every time we enter hardship and suffering, it's an opportunity to experience the strength of the Lord who uses weak people. And that leads into the second image. They go from strength to strength. The psalmist already said, blessed are those whose strength is in you. So the idea of this image is not that they're going from their own strength, but they move from God's strength to God's strength. That their whole journey of pilgrimage, their whole journey of discipleship is a one long dependence upon God to show up and move in power. That it is God who is strong. And so again, do you hear the power of having a life purpose like that? If your life purpose is anything else, it falls on you. It falls on your strength, your ability, your knowledge, your wisdom, your ingenuity, your luck to fulfill that purpose. And so you might have seemingly a very important purpose, set of meaning for your life. Maybe you would say, I exist to serve my family. Maybe you'd say, I exist to serve the poor. Maybe you'd say, I exist to heal the sick. These are amazingly good things. And if they are your foundational purpose, you will be crushed. Because at the end of the day, death can take your loved ones away. Suffering and sorrow can defeat your attempt to help those in poverty and sickness. You can fail. You can sin. And, and destroy your family. You can sin and ruin your attempts to fulfill this life purpose. Do you see how there is a foundation, an anchor in being a disciple of God that's unshakable? That if I am ultimately here on earth to be his disciple, that means sin and sorrow and suffering and death cannot take my purpose away. It means even when I fail, my purpose hasn't failed because it's God's purpose. And he always brings his purposes to completion. As Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what's your life purpose? Is it something that can be uprooted, shaken, defeated by life circumstances, by your own sin and failure? Or is it rooted in being God's disciple? Look back at the text one more time, verses 10 through 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The first thing we see in our text is if we're going to answer the identity question, who am I? We need to see ourselves fundamentally as worshipers. Second, if we're going to answer the purpose question, how does my life have meaning or significance? We need to dig down to the, the root, the foundation of being God's disciple. And finally, if we're going to answer the belonging question, who are my people? Where do I belong? We need to find that answer in God's care and provision, trusting in him. That's what the psalmist does. And the psalmist sees there's an exclusivity to God's belonging. If you are going to belong to God, you must not belong to wickedness, 
to sin, to evil, to the desires of the flesh. And he takes it so seriously. He would rather be with God for one day than anywhere else for a thousand days. He would rather be a lowly doorman in the house of God than have any place of honor and prestige in the tents of the wicked. He is challenging us to pay attention to our priorities. What matters most to us? Where do we want to spend our time? Is coming to worship God more important, a thousand times more important than anything else? That's a challenge. But you see the root of his sense of belonging to God as well. After he says the exclusivity of God's belonging, he talks about the care, the provision, the love of God. You see, we feel we belong somewhere when we know we're welcomed, when we know we're loved, when we know we are cared for. And so that's immediately why he goes to God's care. First, he talks about God being a sun and a shield. He is light and protection. He is wisdom and safety. He is the God who ultimately leads us into truth, who can ultimately protect us from evil and death. Then he says he is the God who bestows favor and honor, literally the Hebrew words for grace and glory. He is the God who gives us mercy. He is the God who gives us undeserved love when we sin against him. He is the God who raises us up from the dust, who makes much of us, who glorifies us. And finally, he is not miserly. He is not stingy with us. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Do you hear how God deeply cares for us? Cares for us in ways far deeper than we often are searching to be cared for. He is our wisdom. He is our protection. He gives us mercy and grace when we fall. He glorifies, he honors us. He is good to us. And so where are you looking to belong? We go looking for belonging in so many places. We so desperately want to fit in. We so desperately want to be welcomed. We want to be loved. And that leads us to look in all the wrong places. It leads us to look in the tents of wickedness where we should be looking to the courts of the Lord. We should be looking to him to care for us, to love us. And don't you see how much richer is the love, the care, the belonging you can have with God than anywhere else? That's what the psalmist is putting before our eyes. And then finally, when you look at verse 12, it's a summary, a summary of the blessings that we've already seen. The first blessing is to dwell with God as his worshiper. The second blessing is to go in God's strength as his disciple. And this final blessing is wherever I am to always trust in the Lord. Trust that he will give me a deep abiding sense of my identity Trust that he will give my life significance and meaning. Trust that he will care for me, provide for me, give me belonging in his house. That's what this psalm is all about. But there's one part of our text we skipped over. You gotta look back with me at verses eight and nine. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Verses eight and nine stick out like a sore thumb in our text. The rest of the passage has been a, a psalm of praise, a hymn of confidence in God's goodness, in the fact that all our desires are satisfied in him. And then there's this prayer for the king. 
That's the anointed one, the king. And it just sticks out as kind of odd, at least to us. Except in ancient Israel, it wouldn't have been odd at all. In fact, so much of the worship of God was dependent upon the king. It was the king's duty to secure the nation so that it was possible to make these long pilgrimages to and from Jerusalem, to the temple. It was the king's duty to be the lead worshiper, leading God's people into the praise of Yahweh. And so the psalmist is praying, God, please look on your your anointed one. Please protect the king. Please guide the king so that we can continue to worship. And one of the primary messages of the Old Testament is all these earthly kings failed again and again. They did not lead God's people into the worship of his name. They led them to false worship. They led them into slavery and exile and disaster. And so this prayer is very earnest, very real for the psalmist who needs the king to be protected and guided into true worship. But there's a far greater anointed one There is a king more glorious than David and Solomon, more glorious than any king of Israel, the son of God himself, Jesus, who came to earth and died on the cross. And when he died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, from the top because it was God who tore it, because he wanted to bring us near to himself, to bring us into his worship, to bring us into meaning and significance, to bring us into his love, his care, his compassion, his salvation for us. So that it is in Jesus, as we read in Hebrews 10, that it is through his body broken, his blood shed, that we can come near to the presence of God and worship him. It is because of Jesus who washes us, sprinkles us clean with the waters of his own baptism that we are acceptable to God. We are viewed as upright, as full of integrity and holiness, and he accepts our worship. We belong to him. It's because of Jesus, our high priest, our intercessor, that we can be confident wherever we are on our pilgrimage, in our discipleship, that God's strength is with us because Jesus is constantly interceding. That's our confidence. That's the reason we can worship. That's the reason we can have boldness to know this is my identity. This is my purpose. This is where I belong. And so I don't know what question you're most wrestling with this morning. I think all of us are constantly wrestling with at least one of these. I don't know if you're wrestling with your identity. You're really struggling with who am I? Who did God make me to be? And you've been trying to figure it out on your own and you desperately need to stop looking inside and you need to look outside to him. I don't know if you're wrestling with the purpose question. If you feel like every morning you get up and you have no reason for living. If you feel like you get up and you don't know why you're here or you feel like you get up and your purpose is failing. It's going nowhere. And you need to look to Jesus, to his kingdom, to being his disciple. I don't know if you're struggling with the belonging question. You desperately want to fit in and you feel you don't know who cares for you, who loves you, who welcomes you and you need to look to Jesus. I invite you this morning as we come to the table of our Lord where you are given Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you, be reminded 
that God has answered all of our biggest questions on the cross. That is where God put his claim upon us. That is where God has promised us new life. That is where God has promised that nothing goes to waste, that his purposes are fully accomplished. Come see Jesus anew this morning. Let him give you a new sense of your identity, your purpose, that you belong to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many in this room this morning who are wrestling with huge questions. Who am I? Does my life matter? Where do I belong? And we need to find the answer in the one place that is actually a firm foundation. Would you set our eyes on your son, Jesus? Would you remind us of your magnificent love that you displayed for us on the cross? That you truly do not withhold any good thing because you didn't even withhold your own son from us. Send your Holy Spirit upon us. Give us new eyes to see you, God, to see in you satisfying joy and life-giving purpose. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.